There are moments in the scripture where events just make you pause and take a step back and look at all that is happening. There are also moments in the scripture where people rise up to where you you have to take a fuller look at who they are. Our passage this morning is from the book of Acts chapter 9 where we see just a moment that causes us to stop reading. If you're trying to read the whole book of Acts, there are going to be normal times where you take a break or, you know, get some food or hang out with someone. And then there are times like chapter 9 where you just take a moment and reflect on all that it's teaching. Within the uh, chapter 9, we see a man named Saul show himself um, more brightly than he ever has before. Saul has been mentioned a couple of times to us at this point, maybe just a, one chapter earlier, and we know about this man named Saul, who in a large part of the New Testament is also known as Paul, but here we're encountering him in a very unique way. Now Saul, for a lot of reasons, shows himself to be just an incredible person, right? He was known as being brilliant. He was known as being an amazing legal scholar. He had so much wisdom when it came to understanding the texts as he had been taught at that time. He was a, someone who was tutored by one of the greatest lecturers of that era. He, Paul or Saul was a well-traveled man, a true Renaissance man, just 1,200 years kind of before his time. I mean, the guy even used analogies like sports. There was nothing that he couldn't encounter or touch that, that would show anything other than this guy either knows what he's doing or is just truly incredible. You know, the Michael Jordan before Michael Jordan, or in our case, the LeBron James before the LeBron James. Saul, we encounter, is just a larger-than-life figure, but within our text and even texts before, there are groups of people who don't look at Saul like you would look like a hero. There are lots of people who would run from Saul. He was a terrorizing figure, someone who would hunt after people. So what we see in this text is that Saul actually is seeking continually after terror. So this morning we'll be reading from bits and pieces of Acts chapter 9. I just encourage you to use your Bible to follow along as I read them to you. It'll also be helpful to use your outline. So at the first of our outline, we see that Saul is seeking terror. Seemingly capable of everything, you'd be mistaken if you thought he was in your town to be your companion or your friend. Saul would generally go to people when he was wanting the worst for them. Saul of Tarsus was a man who was truly feared and he would ravage what became known as the church or the way of Christ. His intent was to stamp out this new movement that showed itself in this small glimmer and continually keeps growing. So Saul and people like him are much like bounty hunters or out-of-control sheriffs who are going throughout the town into Jerusalem. And in our case this morning, they're actually going hundreds of miles out of the way to stamp out this growing church of Christ. Originally, Saul's activity would have kept him in Jerusalem, but in our text, he's seeking permission to hunt Christians wherever they are and to gather them up and to bring them back to Jerusalem where they would be persecuted and in often cases killed. Look at verse 1. Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
Now, Damascus was an old city, thousands of years old, and about 125 miles north of where Jerusalem was. It was a, an amazing city, but it would connect places like Mesopotamia and Egypt and the Arabian Desert. So it's kind of this last truck stop on the, on the way out towards the end of the earth. And Saul was chasing people as they were going north. Maybe he was chasing them because they were so fearful that they were running from the terror that was happening in Jerusalem. Maybe he was chasing them because he wanted to make sure it didn't get past Damascus. Because there was also the Roman Empire who may have been catching glimpses of this new faith that was catching on. And it was very different than what Rome was promoting. So Saul was trying to capture people before they would reach the end Now, we also encountered Saul when he was the person who kind of oversaw the execution of Stephen. Remember when Ryan preached several weeks ago that before they stoned and killed Stephen, they laid, these murderers laid their coats at the foot of Saul. So he had been already practicing this before. He was a man that had no moral compass except he thought he was rightfully following the scriptures of his faith. He saw people who were becoming Christians as actually outlaws themselves. He thought they were blaspheming against the God who he was worshiping. And he he had a lot of, for all intents and purposes, a lot of reason to think that. I mean, he was trained by the smartest people. He went to the best schools. And even though he was from Tarsus, he would go all the way to Jerusalem in order to read the scriptures according to what it was. So when people like Stephen would preach a sermon, Saul is going, that is not what the Bible says. In fact, you're blaspheming against God. So Saul was ready to gather and ravage anyone in sight who was following the way and he was chasing them all the way out of town he is like a a raging bull now with warrants of arrest from the high priest he takes his anti-christian campaign to wherever he would find people who align themselves with the way he didn't need a search and seizure warrant to break into a house. Just if he thought that you were following Jesus, he would just go and capture you. And now he had permission from the high priest of where he is located. His persecution of Christians as portrayed in the book of Acts and later on his own account was one that was called relentless. He would go into foreign cities and he would beat people, falsely imprison them, and he would persecute the God. Even his own words say in Galatians, beyond measure, I persecuted the church of God and made havoc of it. It's one thing to persecute a church, but then when you're seeking to create havoc amongst an organized people, you have to be hunting and seeking true terror. There was prey before Saul, and he, like a wolf, was ready to ravage the church. But here we see that Saul's world is about to be flipped upside down as he was seeking the ends of the earth in order to stamp out people who he saw were blaspheming against God himself. It would turn on him. Look at verse 3. Now he went on his way and he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Written in this case, it would have been about midday, so it's bright on midday, obviously. And then when a light would come in that would blind people, it had to be this force, this physical presence of light that would stop people in their tracks. So this light from heaven shone around this mighty Saul. And here we'll see that Saul is not only seeking terror, but secondly, Saul is encountering Jesus. Verse 4, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. As Saul is approaching Damascus looking to hunt all of the church's people, suddenly a great light from heaven rushed around him. And the light had to have been intense enough to actually knock him off his feet and cover his eyes. A voice from heaven booms, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? If you're Saul, you had to be familiar enough with scripture that when someone's word is repeated like this, it's not just someone calling out to say, hey, how's it going? Saul, Saul, coming from the heavens, he would remember in the scriptures that this is how the Lord himself, Yahweh, talked to Moses. This is how God talked to Isaiah before revealing all of his holiness to him. So the Lord is saying, Saul, Saul. So naturally his answer doesn't just give us reason to think that he said, hey, who's going there? But rather, who are you, Lord? Not knowing exactly who it was, he would have known that this is a unique voice from heaven and also with the the lightning strike that shines around him. Saul did recognize the voice to some degree, but there's no reason to think that he would have thought it would be the person who's speaking. The person who is speaking here is Jesus, the one whom Saul thought he was defending in the name of God, defending the true church, the people of Israel from this person who all these other people thought came to earth and lived a good life and rose from the grave. Who knows if he thought that was even true, but he's no longer here. And then this Jesus speaks to him in our passage. Paul, a person of the Hebrew scriptures, you'd have to know his stomach is tightening. There's this internal crutch that's now happening in his soul in the same way that when you and I might be scared or our mom might come into our room when we said we were going to do our homework and she goes, what are you doing? And then here Saul is encountered by God himself. And not only God, but Jesus, whom he didn't believe in. This Jesus who was talked about as having authority to execute pure judgment on all of creation. The Jesus whom God the Father raised from the grave. Even when these people thought that they were hanging him on a tree to kind of show off to the world that this is your Lord, that we can hang him up. This is the Jesus that encounters him, the one and the only one who can give repentance to him. This is the risen Messiah. These words must have struck Saul, but not only in name only, not just it's Jesus, but also I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul thought that he was persecuting heretics, right? People who weren't following the Lord. According to his scriptures, people who were blaspheming against God's name himself. But here Jesus appears to Saul and says, You're persecuting me. Now, as Christians, there are a lot of things that we can take away from that. Just from a drama standpoint, this is an amazing climax to the story. What If he says that he's going to persecute him, what is he going to do to him? But not only that, Christian, one thing that you can do is take a step back from this. And Jesus himself identifies with his people. The Lord of the universe, when his people are being persecuted... The Lord of the universe identifies with his people. Oftentimes we we find ourselves kind of lone soldiers in the world, wondering if the God actually knows where we are. How many psalms cry out, how long, O Lord? Where are you, Lord? 
And here, Jesus is showing that he is with his people. He feels what they felt. He doesn't just understand what they're going through. But when his people are persecuted, Jesus himself identifies with personhood. Saul thought he was pursuing heretics, but here, throughout his life, Jesus is showing that he was not only opposed when he was here physically on earth, but even when he was reigning and ruling on high, he identifies with his people in the same, such a way that he would look at Saul and say, you've been hunting down Christians, but you've really been hunting down me. And here I am. Christ is identified with his disciples when they suffer, he suffers. And here Paul is pushed back and pushed down to the ground. In verse 6, the Lord continues to speak to Saul. Look at it. It says, but rise and enter the city, and you be told what you were to do. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So here's this incredible figure in the world who was known to wreak terror. And then when light shines, other people around him don't really know what's going on. They, they certainly know that something is happening because they would have seen the brightness of the light. But then they can't actually hear what's going on between the conversation with the Lord himself and Saul. And then they see Saul rising, blind. And he would tell them that he has to go into Damascus because that's what the Lord told them to do. So Saul here, obediently, for the first time in his life, obeys the Lord. But he doesn't just go into Damascus because that's, that's where he was going anyway. But this mighty Saul can't even see the feet in front of him can't even feel his way around. He has to be led by the hand. You would have to imagine this pathetic image of this mighty man and, a, and light struck and he's blind and his cohorts have to lead him into the city. And for three days he didn't eat. For three days he didn't drink. Jesus put him in a state of brokenness and helplessness. The, the radiance and the glory of God blinded him, reduced this man to total powerlessness. And he had been led now at this point by others into the city. So you've got to look at it at this point and just see the narrative unfold. And you, you, I would imagine you would ask yourself, what is God going to do with Saul now? Right? He finally captured this bandit, this guy who's out of control. I mean, what has God done with his enemies in the past? Surely he's going to do that to Saul at this point. You know, what has God done to people who have opposed him? You know, a couple of options when we just read the scriptures. One, he could just basically put Saul in time out, right? Remove him from the situation. We'll read in the, uh, we read in the book of Joshua where God's people were advancing into a city and trying to figure out a way to overtake the city of Jericho. And they weren't very good because they were discovered like one verse later. So these spies who were trying to figure out how the Lord's army would advance into Jericho were caught in word but then they were distracted by the providence of God who used a woman to tell their hunters uh yeah they left the city just after nightfall and so maybe they God could have distracted Saul like you know reverted the bridge as it goes across a river or you know cover up this path and make Saul go that way to another city he could do that but that doesn't seem good enough does it He's a terrible person. Maybe he could use Saul like a puppet. 
you know, in the Old Testament scriptures in Numbers 23 and 24, there was a king of the Moabites who saw God's army advancing and he knew that he was going to be crushed, except he had one trick up his sleeve and that was to hire a magician. So the king of the Moabites hired this magician. This magician was going to cast a spell on God's army so that they wouldn't come in. And what did God do with that magician? He actually used that magician as the voice of God. And the voice of God was going to promise destruction, not only there, but was going to promise ultimate destruction. So you had this magician who was now talking as the voice of God himself. So maybe that's what God could do. He could use Paul as a puppet. You know, maybe, maybe Paul could be, start giving false witness or telling people to go a different way, but he could be used by God uniquely. Even that doesn't seem that great, right? Time out, that's not good enough. A puppet, you know, that's not great as well. But maybe he could, maybe he could punish Saul. Yeah, it seems more like it, right? Saul has been now for days and probably weeks, has been punishing Christ's people, has been punishing the church of God, has been rounding them up and beating them and overseeing their murder. Maybe God could do to Saul like he did with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, a living, angry man against the Lord, and then the Lord slowly but surely brought his wrath down, not just on Pharaoh through things like plagues, but also on all of Egypt through things like plagues. I mean, why wouldn't God lay waste to his enemies? It seems right, doesn't it? But even more than suffering, that doesn't seem good enough. Why doesn't God just kill Saul at this moment? We're reminded of Goliath, right? First Samuel, Goliath, this mocker of God's people, this angry man against God. And then God appoints a man named David who just picks up a pebble and slings it at this giant. And he hits him right in the head and he falls down dead. But is it? As if that's not good enough, David then goes and cuts off his head. Why'd the guy not deserve it, right? An enemy of the Lord. So why wouldn't we pick one of these things and see the Lord's hand at work, time out, used by God, punished by God, killed by God. But what God does here is unpredictable. It seems unreasonable, unfathomable. What God does here is he actually takes this chief persecutor And God redeems Saul. Thirdly, Saul is seeking terror. Saul encounters Jesus. And by encountering Jesus, God redeems Saul. Didn't kill him. Didn't punish him. Didn't put him in timeout. None of those. The most unthinkable thing happens here. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says, nobody else but God would ever have thought of justifying those who are guilty. No one else but God, Spurgeon says, would actually take an enemy of, the, an enemy of God himself and actually not bring him close, but bring him into his fold. The most violent persecutor of the Lord Jesus Christ is saved by Christ himself. Saul sees the risen Christ And he is saved by him or redeemed by him. God looks at the enemy and brings him in. By this very resurrected presence of God, God here justifies the ungodly. God here redeems the unrighteous. God here saves the sinner. But what does it mean to be saved or to be redeemed? At this point, we still don't know what's going to happen with Paul itself. But what does it mean for God to redeem Saul? What it means is that the Holy Spirit works within this unbeliever to 
to almost place Saul in, in light or in the sight of a holy God. And through that work, the Spirit, it says, regenerates the soul. The scripture premise of he redeems him by regenerating his heart. He basically doesn't just make it good, but he makes it new. He doesn't retrofit this hard heart. He actually gives this dead heart new life. So what God does when he redeems people is he places us in front of a holy God where we see our sin and we see his holiness and we just want to back away and run and hide like the presence of the Lord blinds us from who he is. But the Lord in his kindness through his spirit reveals the love that God has for this agent of destruction. And now here you have a soul who is not only redeemed but now looks at God with faith. And with denying himself. And the word in the Bible is called repenting of his sins. Turning from who he is. God redeems Saul by his spirit renewing his heart. In this act overall is summed up we see in scripture by the word what it means to be justified. Where God's loving and full deliverance of those who believe in Jesus for their saving grace is no longer to be counted by their sins, but is only going to be counted by the righteousness of God. It's like Christ himself takes off his righteous robe and removes the filthy rags of Saul and places his robe on Saul. So that when the Lord looks at Saul, he sees an heir to Christ's throne, a brother or a sister in this way. He's reconciled, not just justified, not just redeemed, not just regenerate, but now he's reconciled. So the wrath of God no longer has any place on Saul's life because it had all of its place on Christ's life. He sought out Saul and through the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, he atones for the work that was needed from Saul and he gave Saul this basic but also particular inward call by showing up this presence of the Lord regenerates him and brings him faith and he's counted as justified the most mighty and aggressive hater of the Lord is redeemed by God's mercy it's unfathomable and only God would ever choose to do that right you and I would have wanted to at least choose one of the other things that God would do to his people but God only shows his kindness and his love for his people because he wanted Saul on his team removes the sin from his life and brings them close to him and this is what happens at conversion but not only just Saul we we might look at Saul and go that seems incredible but I'm nothing like Saul you know to start out with I can't read Hebrew so there's no way that I would even go to that school But then secondly, there's no way that I'm like Saul at all. But at our own conversion, the same exact thing happens to us. You know, we might remember a moment or we might not remember a moment at all. Just, you know, sometime between the age of like, I don't know, 8 and 45, I felt like the Lord was working on me. But there's a moment when the Lord himself appears to you and shows himself as holy, and shows you as sinful, but also shows you in such a way his love that you call out to him and say, I'm done with trying to earn everything, and it's only through you that I can be saved. Sometimes the words come right to us, and sometimes it's just the feeling of, I need to follow Jesus. In all of our testimonies, God himself appears to us, and we respond to him. 
Paul recounts this, now known by the rest of the world as Paul, once known as Saul. Paul would recount this in 1 Corinthians 9, Galatians 1. He calls this experience as the beginning of a new life. It wasn't just a life that got better or a life that got another degree or a new friend or a new marriage, but it was new life altogether. What Saul experienced is an imp- a personal encounter with Jesus and he responds in faith to do whatever God says to do. And for the rest of his life, he is given the blessings that can only come with salvation. And that's joy. That's purpose. That's ultimate hope. What, what divides Christians and non-Christians is nothing other than one has true hope that they will be living with God in paradise forever and ever. And the others just don't. I mean, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. By no means do Christians, should by no means, Christians think that they're better than you or smarter than you or they just, they just get what you don't get. What makes us different than maybe where you are is that we have something that we can actually count in in a world that doesn't let us count in anything. You know, we can't trust in what the world gives us, but we can trust in what God has given us, a full presence of Jesus and a fullness of his spirit. Here I want you to take a step back like I did before when I told you to look at how God identifies with his people. But here I want you to understand God's particular love for you. Jesus came to Saul and said his name. It wasn't just general. It wasn't just, hey, anyone who's out there, by the way, I'm on my way to Damascus too. He came for him in particular. And if you are a Christian, he came for you in particular. Jesus himself, your sins were counted as he bore them on the cross. He knew your name from before the foundation of the world. You know, it's one thing to have a friend. It's another thing to have a friend who's known you for a long time. It's a sweet thing to have a friend who it just feels like you and he or you and she have known each other forever. And Jesus here has known Paul and calls out to him and summons him to himself. And Paul responds, this particular love is truly what allows us to know that he's not just this general sovereign God, but is a sovereign God who particularly and definitely and effectively loves his people. Friends, sing to that. Non-Christian, long for that. Call out to the man who knows you from before the foundation of the world. Saul encounters Jesus in sin and in anger and in evil aims, even in persecution, and God saves him by revealing himself and then commissions him for a work. So God appears to Saul, who was seeking terror, who encounters Jesus. And now look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. The Lord here appears to Ananias in a vision. And the one whom Saul had intended to pay cruel intentions on is now being used by God to go and remove the blindness from Saul. Jesus instructs Ananias to seek out Saul. And he doesn't just randomly do it, but says, go to this street, 
go to this house, look for this man who's from here, whose name is this. And so we would look at this naturally and we see Ananias' question or response. Look at verse 13, it says, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Ananias wasn't quick to affirm God's instruction, but here sort of questions as if to give God a a reason to go, okay, I'll choose someone else. You want me to go to who? The man who's coming here to lay waste of all of us? Surely Jesus didn't want him to go to this man, but definitely Jesus did. Look at verse 15. He not only commands him to go in verse 15, but also starts to give him a reason of why he's going to go there. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So again, he's telling Ananias, go. And then he gives him a reason, kind of opening up a window of here's what I'm doing in this event calling someone a chosen instrument we often think of like old testament versions of that a chosen instrument like a like a broken pot that can amazingly be used by an all-powerful god but here it's not just a a chosen instrument but it's going to be a a vessel that is going to carry god's good news to the gentiles to the kings to the children of israel basically to say i'm going to use saul to tell everyone about me But he doesn't just talk to him about what he's going to use him for. He also tells Ananias what's going to ultimately happen to Saul. That he would suffer for God's sake. For the sake of his name. Christ's name. This is a true highlight of the Saulian conversion. Where he's going to promise to Saul what he's going to do. But he's not going to tell him that it's going to be easy. God openly didn't promise Saul comfort. He didn't say that following him will bring him ultimate care here on earth. And he told him it's going to be a commitment. Not always going to be cozy, but what Saul would talk about later in his letters to the church is that it is going to be the fullest sense of contentment that he's ever had in his life. He then will have ultimate joy in working for the glory of Jesus. And even though he will be persecuted like he was persecuting others those same kinds of people are now going to be persecuting him and ministry for him is going to be hard working is going to be hard evangelizing people is going to be hard being within a church itself I mean it has people it's going to be hard too but he's going to be used as a vessel the one who once was the church's most intense persecutor would now would now would be the one who God is going to use to reach the ends of the earth C.S. Lewis says that every conversion is the story of a blessed defeat. A mighty man on his way to gather up who he thought were enemies of God dies at that moment in his soul and is remade, brought from new, born again, as we would see, converted completely. His old self is put to death and his new self is brought onto him by the Holy Spirit. God responds with go, giving Saul this ultimate commission. And what a commission it is, right? To reach the ends of the earth, Gentile, Jew, anyone in sight, 
to go to different places and to be used by God in that way. What an amazing commission. So on top of Saul being saved in an incredible way, he also is given this amazing purpose for why he's being saved. And you might go, yeah, I mean, if if those things happened to me, I would be like Saul too. How many times did I think to myself this week in, in my study just going, I mean, I wish it would be so clear to me, like it was to Paul, of how I'm going to be used. You know, I don't know what I'm going to do for the next 65 or with science, 100 years of my life. I hope God's going to uniquely use me. But Paul's salvation, I talked about earlier, wasn't different than maybe y'all's salvation, if I can broadly sweep here. How he was saved is the Lord encountering him at that moment and renewing his heart. But here the commission for Saul is actually no different than the commission for you. Your conversion is like Saul's and your commission is like Saul's too. Our response ought to be the same as Saul's. We obey just completely. Wherever you have me go, Lord, there I am. It's been amazing how many people Brooke and I have met in the you know, month and a half that we've been here. And it's like half of you have said, I never would have thought I'd be in New Mexico, but here I am. Yeah, Saul never would have thought that he would actually be evangelizing for Jesus, and there he went. Your commission is to be on mission for God, and he just says to go, but also you're not given a doubt of what you're supposed to do when he tells you to go. For all of us, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you might be given opportunities that I can't do, whether you're in a certain place or at a certain time. You know, I'll never be a woman, I'll never be a mom, but many of you are. I'll never work in a bank, I don't think, and some of you do, or I'll never drive something for a living and encounter people at different things in different places, but some of you do. While, while our opportunities might look different, our commission is the same. We're to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and that might look like your living room, and it might look like random hiking on the mountain where the Lord speaks to you and just says, you should tell the gospel to that person. So our commission is the same of this amazing commission. Paul is being told to go to the ends of the earth and we are being told the same thing. John 14, live in obedience. John, 1 John 2, know Christ and fellowship in the sharing of his suffering, the talking about the church. Philippians 3, tell the world. That was for all of us. Be a light in a dark world just as a light appeared in a dark world to Saul. The faith and the trust of Ananias and of Saul being countered by God shouldn't cause us to part or pause, but actually should cause us to be motivated to go. The Lord appeared to Saul in light and he went. The Lord appeared to Ananias in a vision and he went. And the Lord appears to us in our salvation and he doesn't say, retire. I mean, maybe retire when you're done working at some point, but never stop being a light for Christ. Lord tells us to go continually. So Ananias responds, look at verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. A striking greeting now. This enemy of Saul And Saul, an enemy of the Lord Jesus, now he's being greeted as brother Saul. 
Not not to be lost in translation. What that means is this unifying effect of what Christ did for both of us actually makes us this strong unit together. Brother Saul, and he sent me here for a reason. Saul was not only changed that day, but uniquely, at least in language, in how Ananias saw Saul, he was changed as well. He saw this enemy like God saw this enemy, and he now calls him a brother like God calls him a son. And he speaks to Saul, and he told Saul that the Lord had sent him with a double purpose, one, to remove the blindness, and then two, to encourage him to go as God would tell him to go. And it says here that when he prayed with him and put his hands on him, that something like flakes or scales fell from the eyes of Saul. In Luke's gospel and in Matthew and Mark and John, the idea of being blind is twofold. One, it's a physical blindness. But also it, it, it's a metaphor of a dark heart. Where with a dark heart you can't see God and his goodness. But when you're given a new heart, it's like the scales fall off your eyes. What you normally could not see ever, now you can see. Remember when I got contacts when I was like 12 and I could see leaves for the first time. I always knew they were there. But then you walk out of the eye doctor and you're like, whoa. In the same way, Saul has scales fall from his eyes and he can see whereas he wasn't able to see, but more than that, he knows who he used to not know, and that's by the work of the Spirit. Don't lose the fact that what is happening here is what Jesus promised long ago that he would do. In reading from the scrolls in in a synagogue of his youth, he picked up a scroll and what seemed like random to other people was purposeful by Jesus, and he read Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover sight from the blind, set liberty on those who were oppressed. Paul or Saul came to Jesus poor, captive, blind, oppressed in his sin, and he left in the reverse of all of that. The Lord's work in Saul's heart shows itself physically through the scales falling away from his eyes, but more literally from what has been removed from his heart, sin, and what has been poured in, Jesus' truth and triumph over his soul. Saul certainly did not only have scales from his eyes, but was also filled with the Spirit. So throughout Acts, we see things that that give us pause, like you're full of the Spirit, or uniquely in this part, you're filled with the Spirit. When you're full of the Spirit, it's just you have the the character of God exuding itself through you. Love, peace, joy, hope. But when you're filled with the Spirit, it's like the power of God himself is filling you to do something for the purpose of bringing God more glory and more good. We see what's happening here with Saul, where he was receiving the filling of the Spirit. And we we see that play out for the rest of his life where he is going to the ends of the earth by the power of God himself to proclaim the goodness of Christ to people who just like he once was oppressed, blind, poor, now they receive the goodness of Christ forever. So he was filled with the Spirit. The power of the Lord Jesus can break down the stubborn will of those who are the same as this chief legalist. If there's anything that you can take away from this text is that it was a man like Saul who was so far removed from God on purpose, hated Jesus in such a way that he was willing to kill 
Jesus' followers. And so there is no one in this room who is too far removed from God for God to not save. Your, your children or your parents or your friends are not too far removed for you to stop praying for their salvation, begging God to save them. No one. I mean, no one. Saul was the worst by every account. And the Lord brought him to himself, filled him with the Spirit, gave him eyes to see and boldness to live. God will reach the furthest out enemies and he will defeat the uttermost of human rebellion. What we've seen here multiple times in the book of Acts in our time together, we've seen that God has no true boundaries geographically. He has no true boundaries ethnically. But underneath all of that, he has no true boundaries when it comes to our hard hearts. He conquers even that. Not just going to a new town, but going in a dead heart and bringing it to life. So Saul receives a filling of the Spirit and is no longer blind. Verse 18, it says, immediately something like scales from his eyes and he regains sight. And then he rose and was baptized. And remember, he was for three days without food and drink. I can't go six hours without food. I can't imagine how few amount of hours I could go without a drink. But for three days, he sat and didn't eat and didn't drink and he couldn't see. This is a man who days before, it seems like, would have seen the stoning of, of Stephen, but not just the stoning of Stephen. He would have heard the message that Stephen would have presented, a case of the true teaching of the Old Testament, a case of the true teaching of who the Messiah was. And, and played up against that, you have this legal, amazing scholar who was better than any Hebrew scholar before him. You know, he was kind of the chosen or the promised one who would, who would stamp out the church and now for three days sits by himself, at least in vision, alone, hungry, tired, without drink. It would be hard to imagine they wouldn't be replaying the testimony of the Old Testament in his mind. Have I gotten it all wrong? And then the Lord sends Ananias who lays his hands on him and he can see. And the first thing that he does is he identifies himself with the very people that he was going to persecute. He identifies himself with Jesus and his baptism. He identifies himself with Jesus' people and his baptism. He shows this, this true sign of the gospel where he is buried in his sins, but he's been given new life and being raised by the power of God himself and his presence. Immediately he was baptized. And then he takes food in verse 19 and was strengthened. Flesh, fleshly, I'm always encouraged anytime I see food in the Bible. Just reminds me of how great food is. But whenever, whenever food is talked about in the New Testament, it's always at a moment of fellowship. You know, whether the 5,000 people being fed or Jesus gathering his disciples around him, or the breaking of bread when the church comes together to celebrate and proclaim the risen Christ. Here, he is baptized, and then he eats, and he remains in Damascus for several days with the disciple. This hater of Jesus and Jesus' people is now identifying with Jesus' people and even sharing a meal with them. Now, they would tremble at that too. We'll see later on in our study of Acts, but here he identifies with God's people truly an amazing grace that seems to be unfounded or unheard of at this point. 
Hard to overstate the significance of Saul's conversion, isn't it? Hard to overstate that this doesn't cause just a sudden stop where it's like, okay, wait a minute. What just happened in verse 1 through 19? That seems so far-fetched from what the Lord can do. But it's not at all because of what the Lord continually shows that he's always doing. In the book of Acts, God's gospel not only overcomes all the things, but it conquers sin in the works of people. But that's just what Christ does. He comes into the world that he made and removes despair from the people who he loves and gives them hope. We see in Acts that the Spirit is empowering the church to expand beyond all kinds of borders. And here, in particular, in this passage, God encounters and converts his very enemy, this man named Saul, in order to, one, cease the persecution of all these people who were in Damascus. But on top of that, he's saving Saul to be used as an instrument to reach the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, every person. The world has changed at that moment. Last sermon I told you that when Philip led the the Ethiopian eunuch to the the Lord, it was like this small glimmer. And here it seems like the fire is getting bigger. And what you'll read if you just read the rest of Acts is that the fire doesn't stop. Yeah, there's persecution that still comes on Christians and there's persecution that still comes on Christians today. But the flame and the glory of Christ has never dampened at all. And that glory is that God in his holiness saves the ungodly. And we see that amazing work in this passage in particular. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your saving grace. We thank you that Your mercies, as your words say, are not just new every morning, but that your true mercy gives us life. We thank you that we can see pictures and people like Saul who were saved by you, and it can cause us joy to see this brother who is now with you. We we also, with that, can feel the joy that is inside of us. God, we pray that you will continue to do what you did in this text moment where you sought a sinner and saved him for yourself and also you just sanctified and started the building up more continually of your church. We pray that we would be agents like Saul where we would be filled with your spirit in order to testify and proclaim your grace to the ends of the earth. God we ask this because we've seen your power and we know your power and we say this through the name and the power of your son Jesus Christ. Amen.